Hey, everyone. You're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegich. In this episode of the podcast, Dr. Matthew Tift, someone whom I've admired for quite some time and with whom I've been lucky enough to work with for a short period of time on a project a few years ago. Matthew's a senior developer at Lullabot and the host of the podcast Hacking Culture, which is about free software and the art of hacking. Matthew, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks. Avon for that generous introduction. You're welcome. It's all true though, right? (laughs) Absolutely. So I wanted to start out with your birth, if I could. Where did you grow up? I grew up in South Minneapolis in Minnesota. And I think I was born at the University of Minnesota and lived in South Minneapolis until I was about eight years old until the time that my parents moved out to the suburbs, but I have spent most of my life in Minnesota. And that's where I am now, out in the suburbs of Minnesota near my parents. (laughs) So you're near the suburbs of Minnesota, so you're still in a city? No, I'm in the suburbs. Oh, you are in the suburbs? in In the western suburbs. Oh, I see. I see. By a lake, I would assume. We have a lot of lakes in Minnesota. Yes, I'm very close to Lake Minnetonka, and I walk by that lake quite frequently. I've recently started walking around the lake here in the city um, during meetings, and uh, I've, I've found that it takes me about an hour to leave my front door, walk around the lake, and come home. So if I have a one-hour meeting that I can be on my phone with, try to do that while walking. Are you doing the same thing? Exactly. I, I know that I can walk to Excelsior, Minnesota during my meetings. And sometimes I get to go to the library. Other times I go to the bookshop or even grocery shopping, depending on the type of meeting. And other times I'll just walk around in the woods if I have to be talking more and I need it to be quieter. But that's one of the fantastic benefits of working for home. I agree. I, I, ever since 10.7 started doing it last year full-time, it's been certainly um, a new experience to try to do it and work from home uh, 24-7, but still have the kind of uh, personal interactions that you end up having in an office environment. And I think all in all, it's, uh, it's for the best. Um, I, you know, I can't imagine going back to working in an office. I feel the same way. It's been 10 years for me now working wow. at home. My oldest daughter is starting high school and in the fall and every, every morning for school, since she's been in kindergarten, I've been able to walk out to the bus stop with her and my other daughter. So I've been doing that for about nine years. It's one of the many benefits that I like to cite when I'm working from home that I, I go out to the bus stop, pick them up from the bus stop, make dinner at home, 
and I get to make every class party and play and all kinds of fun school stuff over the years. And it, it really has been uh, a wonderful gift to have that. Do you, th- do you think you'll be walking her to the bus stop now that she's in high school as well? I don't know. Each year I keep thinking she's going to be embarrassed that my wife goes out there as well because she works from home too. And I keep thinking one of these years she's going to say she doesn't want us to come out with her, but I guess we'll see. I don't know. I, I purposefully have not asked or pushed the subject. I just keep going until she says, you don't need to come out with me anymore, which I expected to happen years ago. (laughs) Well, hopefully she's not listening to this podcast, so she won't get any funny ideas. <laughs> I'm not sure. She she might be listening. She's in the other room, but I think she's currently editing videos for her Instagram feed. Wow. Well, you mentioned that you've been working from home for the last 10 years, and so that would put us back to 2008. And I know for a fact you haven't been at Lullabot for that long, so you must have been working from home even prior to that. Yes, that's correct. When we moved back here shortly after my second daughter was born, I had my job at the Wisconsin Public Radio, and I had other job offers to move back and uh, work in an office in Minnesota. But luckily, Wisconsin Public Radio didn't want me to leave, and they allowed me to work from home when we moved from Madison, Wisconsin, to the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And that has been a really, you know, just a, a lucky thing. It was something I never really had imagined could happen or would happen, but it just kind of all worked out. Yes, you've been a a proponent of working from home for a very long time. In fact, when we first met, I was trying to get you to work for 10-7 for for a while. In fact, I remember when we still had an office, you would come in one or two days a week. um, And I I honestly always felt like I was um, asking you to do something you really didn't want to do. Um, but I think secretly I was wondering how we could all be doing what you were um, trying to do full-time. Yeah, that that was actually not a terrible thing for me to be able to get out of the office and work in somebody else's office for one day or part of a day each week. And it was nice to be able to sort of juggle my schedule and get my work done when I needed to, but still be able to go downtown and see people and have face-to-face interactions. A lot of my coworkers at Lullabot pay to have an office, or I shouldn't say a lot. There are a few. And I've always thought that was a little bit odd, but I do understand that it is nice to have that day-to-day human interaction And I don't know if I would be working from home this long if my wife also was not at home and my kids weren't also around. I could see how that would get to be maybe a little bit more uh, wearing on a day-to-day basis if it was just me by myself out here in the suburbs. (laughs) (laughs) By a lake with the woods around. (laughs) That's right. 
<laughs> I think I agree. I think it makes, I think I'm in a similar situation that I have my wife at home um, and my, and my kids are at home now as well. Now that the summer is in full swing, um, I think struggling with isolation and being at home alone certainly um, pushes you to either having a regular place to go or even a coffee shop or a library visit at least once a week. I know that's certainly uh, things that things that people do, especially at ten uh, seven, and I'm sure at Lullabot as well. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, your mention of Madison and uh, being at Wisconsin Public Radio. It feels like a natural fit, given that you have a history of musicology and code that you would be at a public radio station. Um, so talk to me about how you ended up at Wisconsin Public Radio. Were you doing Drupal? Were you doing music? What, what, was, the, what was the impetus to be there? Well, that is a complicated story, but I guess the main reason is I needed to start supporting my family and I was in graduate school. <laughs> So I was finished up with all of my coursework, my master's degree, and my then my coursework for my PhD, and then just working on my dissertation after taking my comprehensive exams. And so there's this period when you're in graduate school when you kind of shift from being a student where you're going to classes to you're just working on research. And that gives you some flexibility, which can result in long periods of people finishing their dissertations. But some people. Some people. But in my case, it just it gave me a little flexibility. So I could I could shift from having a student income, I guess, to having a quote real job. I had been supporting myself through graduate school by being part of a project called the Sea Grant Non-Indigenous Species Project. And it seems strange, but it was basically we created a website that had a whole bunch of information about non-Indigenous species. And I did research for that and automated the process of finding information about non-Indigenous species. And this was the kind of thing that people had to do before Google, <laughs> if you can believe that, you know, back mm. when I started there, it was people were using things like Dogpile to do searches. So oh, Dogpile. And um, what was the other one? Metacrawler. Was it um, Alta Vista? No, there was another, like a Metacrawler, I think. I remember yeah. using those. I can't remember the different names yahoo search i guess <laughs> did you uh, so the description of the project seems bio, biology or ecology related that's not music <laughs> that's correct but it is a department that needed somebody that had technical skills and i guess i convinced them that i that you had those i could do that or i could do awesome. research i don't i don't know why they hired me per se but it worked out pretty well because that uh, that was a, a a position that offered a small stipend but it paid for everything all of my coursework and oh. so i didn't have to you know pay anything for graduate school so that was the 
the big thing, that and health insurance. So uh, we had a strong union back then and we didn't even have to pay any co-pays or anything like that. But anyway, um, so I had this, this job getting a stipend and I needed a real job. Wisconsin Public Radio was actually across the street from the music school on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. I had originally applied there for, get this, a sales position. <laughs> really? <laughs> really. Wow. There's that's always... Like the antitha- that's like the antithesis of open source, right? I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess sales is like you're selling services, not products, maybe, but not even that. I guess I can't even imagine you as a sales guy. So it, I don't even know if sales is quite the right term. You know, we nonprofits use the term development or fundraising. So advancement. Yes, uh, advancement. Now, it at Wisconsin Public Radio, they needed people to go out and. Um, essentially sell people on the value of supporting Wisconsin public radio and just getting those mentions where it says, where it has these um, announcements that sounds like ads, which are actually called underwriting and they don't have calls to action and they don't have all these other things where they say support for Wisconsin public radio is brought to you by such and such company. And they just mentioned support, but the, I'm getting off track because I applied for that job and they had two openings and they didn't give me the job. I was, and they let me know I was third on their list Oh! and they said, but you know, look for other jobs. So I thought, okay, I, I like the idea of working at a place doing music. And, and then they had another job opening up, which was called, um, it was a traffic position, <laughs> which is a job sort of scheduling the things that go on air, uh, mm-hmm. scheduling underwriting, for example. And that was, that was what this job was. And so I, I started that job and I realized immediately that it was totally paper-based. It was really, uh, ripe for being automatic or uh, becoming an automatic job or can't think of the right word right now, but so um, digitized, right? Digitized, automated rather than people turning, literally turning in sheets of paper, paper hand filled out. You know, I made web forms and I made fillable PDFs and things like that. So suddenly we didn't have to keep file cases, but what I ended up doing was um, really working myself out of that job. I got on another uh, interview committee for somebody that was what they called the database manager at that time, managing a SQL server. And after our first meeting, I said, I said to my boss, you know what? I think I can do this job and my job. And she said, what? We, how, how would we do that? Well, she ended up figuring it out. And so I started doing this other job and my job. So I started, I, they taught me how to do VB6 programming. Wow. And how to, I learned, I taught myself SQL Server and I learned Cold Fusion. And I started learning all of these other technologies like C-sharp.net and Flash and ActionScript and upgraded things to C-sharp, no, VB.net or something like that. Upgrading VB6 code. To, to VB.net and to C-sharp.net. I, yep. I have some history of that too. I, I, I feel your pain. 
Yes, but the 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 fun thing about this one is I started doing that job, and that too seemed to be a job that I could automate. And I people needed things. I created processes for them. I wrote these little executables that they could stick on their Windows machines, and they just ran. And then suddenly that job wasn't needed anymore. And then I said, you know, our website at Wisconsin Public Radio that's on Cold Fusion really needs to be upgraded. And everybody said, duh, it needs to be upgraded five years ago. Um, and so for years, I had kind of been pushing, uh, we should try Drupal. We should try Drupal. Um, and eventually, uh, we, we, they, they, they decided that would be a good idea. We should try Drupal. And they sent me to a DrupalCon and back in San Francisco. And we had hired a development firm to help us launch one of our national programs. It's called TT Book to the best of our knowledge. So I think we launched that site on Drupal back in 2009 or 2010. But um, so that's how I, that's how I came about Drupal was because I kept working myself out of jobs. And eventually I, I thought this web development thing seemed a lot more fun than writing executable uh, code for Windows machines. So you had a history of Windows-based, uh, naturally proprietary, closed-source software writing in an organization that was for the public, and you and you you basically worked yourself out of two jobs, but at the same time you were pushing for Drupal. Why Drupal? Why were you not pushing for WordPress or Expression Engine or something else? That's a good question. I remember at the time I had I had started reading some of these early books on free software and what that what that all meant and I knew that it should be something that was free and open source. I guess I didn't I didn't use the term free software at that point. I thought of it as open source. Mm. And at the time I thought that that just made more sense for a public radio station to be using to be using open source software and there seemed to be a lot of other universities and public radio stations using Drupal so it was really kind of a an easy sell because at the time Minnesota Public Radio was using Drupal I think uh and WNYU and some other stations I can't remember actually how far back some of these go, but I would go to all of these meetings of other technologists in the uh, public media world, which means public radio and public television. And there were some people using Drupal, but specifically what we liked about Drupal was that this, this national show TT book, it was difficult to find episodes so just the idea of putting audio on the web was still still kind of new back in 2008, 2009. Yep. And they wanted to be able to take their hour-long show, cut it into segments, add all of these taxonomy terms so it could be searchable and uh, findable. And they, so they could either listen to the whole episode or parts. And really, Drupal seemed like it was well-suited to that task in ways that WordPress or expression engine wasn't plus it just seemed like the the 
the motivation that a lot of people had to use Drupal in those days, which is still strong now in education and nonprofits, was very appealing and very um, attractive to lots of my coworkers at Wisconsin Public Radio. Were you the only person who was driving Drupal, or did you have um, people that you were, uh, you know, you were able to bandwidth? Or, you know, not bandwidth, but people uh-huh. that you're able to band with. Yes. So that was, that was kind of a complicated thing as well, because uh, the, the good thing about TT Book was they had raised money to pay for a development firm to help us build TT Book. So for that particular project, um, we partnered with Gorton Studios, which is actually here in Minneapolis. Or was here, was, I guess. Yeah. It's no longer, uh, Gorton Studios is no longer, or maybe it still is. I, think I don't it know that it is, but... Anyway, uh, we worked with them, and that seemed to be such a successful project that we would go around to public media conferences talking about what we did, and then the people at TT Book kept saying that all of their conversations were with other people saying, we want that. (laughs) We want our site to be searchable. We want it to, so people can find our content. We want our audio on the web. We want to do this, that, and the other thing. And so it was kind of this model site for a while for a lot of stations. And then eventually we decided let's do all of WPR.org. And then they started hiring other people to help, um, they hired another we hired another Drupal developer. We hired somebody else who was basically like a director of digital or something like that for more of like the con I, I can't I can't exactly remember the titles that they that they had, but it was people people involved in determining how how we can have a a digital presence. And I mean that was a new thing at a public radio station that had been around since their early 1900s. So it sounds like you decided to go with Drupal, found some people that shared the same vision, raised some money, hired an agency, had a successful project, saw that there was value in these things you were building, and then it kind of just spiraled from there. Yes. When you, when you were in the process, in the weeds, while you were doing this, did you ever think that you might take components and parts of what you were building and make it generic enough that anybody else would use it? Yes. And we actually did that. And I, I pushed for it. Um, I, uh, there were a couple of modules that I made early on that I knew I wanted to contribute back to Drupal. Part of my motivation came from when I went to my first DrupalCon, which was again in San Francisco, and I remember Drupal went from being this faceless, you know, website technology to, oh my gosh, these people are having so much fun. This is so unbelievably unlike academia. This is <laughs> awesome. And the week while I was in San Francisco, learning Drupal, meeting people. I, I was tweeting about it constantly. And I remember some of my friends saying, uh, you know, I still like you, Matthew, but I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to unfollow you for a while because <laughs> I don't want all Drupal all the time. 
<laughs> so I was having a lot of fun. Uh, and then uh, when we created uh, TT Book, I think one of the modules that we came up with that I think Gorton Studio did most of the development. Uh, Ronan wrote a lot of it, but it was some, it was called something like Media Playlist. So it was a, a module that allowed people to go click through the site and then find audio of what they wanted and then add it to a playlist and then play through those. And I, I'm not sure if they're still using it or not. You know, again, this is this is a while back now, but I'm I'm going off my memory, but I think. I think that module still, well, obviously it's got to be out there somewhere and I'm not sure if that's the correct name, but it is. It's, I, I was able to use the power of the Google. <laughs> um, it looks like it's still out there. It looks like there's a release candidate for version seven <laughs> that's out there. Oh, um, wow. You have nine commits and Ronan has four. Um, but it basically, it says exactly what you described adds playlist functionality onto the media module. Huh? Okay. I, I have closed all of my browsers and other things, so <laughs> I, I, I'm purposefully trying to uh, not do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that uh, <laughs> those facts are all correct. <laughs> or I should say I'm surprised. I personally think that our public institutions in the United States should be more open and more information um, uh, more information should be available to the public because at the end of the day, the government is the people and we own that information. And so we should have access to that information. And I'm just so proud and amazed that um, you've been part of an organization like Wisconsin Public Radio that wanted to contribute back source code and that wanted to provide the work that they'd invested in to others so that they could be reused. And, and that's... Uh, that's certainly something that's near and dear to my heart. So I'm, I'm, you know, happy to see that that was something you were involved in. Yeah, it's been fun. It, those days, it was, it was really kind of my passion to go around to these conferences. And I, I did things like a Drupal developer clinic where I'd talk to other stations about how we use it and kind of show people that. Spend a whole day trying to teach other developers why they might consider using Drupal and be on panels and, and just talking to people about what we did with TT book. And we did webinars and <laughs> things like that because this was all kind of uh, innovative. I, I had been part of another group in public media and the name is escaping me right now, but it was a, a free software advocacy group that had tried to do similar things that they came out with uh, a custom CMS called um, it, was, it was called something like public media manager or something like that. And we, we were all big open source advocates. We were working together. We were trying to create solutions for things that people could, other stations could use. We wanted to create these reusable components so, for example, somebody would make like a Python script that used the NPR API and did interesting things showing where people are listening or how people are, uh, you know, how many, some sort of data or something like that, that they could get as a NPR, an, an M, sorry, an NPR, National Public Radio 
member station. So we would do these kinds of things, but they were really kind of technology specific. And after being part of that group for a while and realizing that, well, they built this great custom CMS that was used at North Country Public Media. And the desire was to have other stations used it, but it really ended up just being a custom CMS for this one station, as far as I know. And what Drupal seemed to offer was this more generic platform that mm-hmm. offered a lot of the same functionality. And it created a good place where anybody using Drupal, not just public media, could use this, for example, this playlist module. And that was that was a that was the thing that kind of made me think, okay, well, this is a good sort of platform that we can try and collaborate on. And since other stations picked up using Drupal, national public media, national public radio was using Drupal, American public radio, American public media, public radio international, like the list goes on and on. And if you look online, there's lists of all of the public media stations that use public radio. It's been, I think, good for public media to have this as a, a collaborative platform. So I, I, um, I, f- I feel like that was, you know, that was kind of a, a fun thing to see grow these over the years. And it's good to see that that continues to expand. You talked about how you would have webinars and how you'd be part of panels and how you tried to educate people about Drupal. And I've seen in the last couple of years, you've been, uh, speaking a lot about teaching kids how to code. And so it seems like your focus has um, kind of changed a little bit in that regard. Is that something you're passionate about right now and, and you will be continuing to do that? What's, tell me more about the teaching kids to code um, work that you've been doing. That's been a lot of fun too. That has been a project where I volunteered to help out with a hour of code day at my kids' elementary school. And the the school tried to have something for all of these kids, ages K through six. And I thought, how the heck are they going to teach, you know, kindergartners coding? But once I started helping out with these different, uh, these, these different, hours during the day and seeing the kinds of things that we could do. I I just saw that these kids loved what they were doing and that you can teach sort of coding principles, even on iPads with, with things that to me look like for each loops or something like that. But for the kids, it's just, you know, rearranging little characters on the screen. So, so that started out. And then, then I started teaching a, a coding class, uh, at that elementary school, which eventually, which started out as like a class to teach, I think we used Minecraft. And then, and then we, me and this other guy taught a class called, where, where we were taught using a type of Minecraft. It was like an extension or something called Bird Brain. And we were able to program these little robots called Finch Robots. Hmm. And the kids loved doing that because these fourth and fifth, I think they were maybe fifth, just fifth graders at that point. You know, we could make the robots drive around in a, a maze or use all the different sensors or sort of make them follow a line or draw patterns or that kind of thing. 
So, so there was that aspect of it. And alongside that, the school district where my kids go to school, the Minnetonka school district started an initiative that they called Tonka codes, which has been a a really uh, innovative initiative where they're, where they wanted to have coding in the curriculum K through 12. Wow. So I ended up on this group called the Tonka codes design team and did a lot of free software advocacy there. But um, that has been a project that is continuing to roll out. It started off in the elementary schools. uh, And so now in the Minnetonka school district K through 12, there's some aspect of coding that is integrated in the curriculum. And I've done a couple of other podcasts discussing this and I have other talks, so I don't know if I want to get too much into the weeds on that, but I'll just say that um, it's been, it's been, I think real key in uh, our district to have this in the curriculum. So there's, there's three different kinds of ways that kids can learn to code. One is what they call extracurricular, which is after school or before school. The other is co-curricular where they have something uh, that's like, instead of lunch, they go to coding and then there's curricular, which is where it's actually part of the, 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 the teaching, the classroom. Mm. So uh, Minnetonka has done a great job of doing that. And I think that's important because not all kids have access to these awesome other programs that are mostly extracurricular. That, in other words, if you want to be able to do something like one of those classes I mentioned after school, you need to have a parent that has the ability to come and pick you up or to change your bus schedule or to drive you somewhere or to buy you, you know, something like, or if the class requires a Raspberry Pi or something like that. So, Getting, getting kids the opportunity to learn coding has been, has been really fun. Um, and, and some other kids at the high school started a Tonka, Tonka Coder Dojo. It was, a, it was a student-run chapter of this Coder Dojo uh, group. And mm-hmm. so I helped out with that as well, which was an interesting experience because a lot of the... With, with all of these things that I've taught... Uh, like when we would post this this Finch Robots class, for example, it would just fill up within minutes of sending the email. Wow. And then we'd have to double, you know, like we'd say, okay, well, can we double it? And, well, all right, well, let's, let's maybe we can have two kids per robot or something. Or, you know, we'd, we'd find ways to allow more kids to come in, but they would always fill up right away. Uh, and with the Tonka Coder Dojo, it was the same way where we would have, it was like Saturday mornings uh, at the high school. And then there would be like one class to teach Android development, one for HTML, one for Minecraft, uh, Minecraft coding, or all these other topics. Never really Drupal, by the way, because kids don't think Drupal's all that cool. <laughs> but but what would be interesting is then these parents would always show up and and they would say, oh, uh, I didn't know it was full and they'd drop their kids off with us. (laughs) Oftentimes the kids didn't actually want to be there. They would rather play Minecraft than do Minecraft. So I realized there's, there's quite a few more parents that kind of would, (laughs) would uh, push it on their kids than kids necessarily that wanted to do it. So that's been interesting. Or the kids, another, another funny story was the parents would sign their kids up as instructors. 
<laughs> they would say, oh, the students are filled. I'll have my kid be an instructor. But, you know, they're really, they they're no skill no to be an instructor. The work, the work that you did with those kids, the, curricular, the curriculum itself, is that open source? Can other school districts use that? The, the knowledge around it is, is definitely something that, that they are sharing. Uh, Eric Schneider is the, I think he's, the, I want to say he's the vice president for curriculum, or no, what do they call it? The assistant superintendent for curriculum for Minnetonka schools. He has been out talking about what they're doing and encouraging other schools to do that. I've been on a podcast with him. It was a lullaby podcast, I think, talking about this. So all like all of the approach and how we did that, they're definitely sharing. The some of the code is, uh, or some of the projects that they do are are shareable. But I I don't know. I, I think a lot of it is actually uh, proprietary. And I haven't been as involved in some of the day-to-day stuff recently, so I don't know just how much of what they're doing is shareable. I do know that there is a project that definitely is focused on open source if schools are interested in that. It's called, there's a book called The Open School House. I think that's what it's called. And the uh, that's all based on using free software in public schools, and it's written by a guy out east that has has converted his whole um his whole classroom to use it or his whole school to using i think linux laptops so i think he shares a lot of the sort of the more technical details of how to do it with free software charlie his name is something like charlie risinger we'll do some research after and we'll (laughs) We'll uh, link it in the show notes on the web. So um, so this seems like one of the things you're passionate about right now. Are there any other things that you're passionate about right now? I guess we haven't had a chance to talk about your musical background as well. And I don't even know what a PhD in musicology is. So like, so many questions still remain. So let's talk about your passions right now outside of the, the kids coding um, that we just talked about. Well, that's, that's a, that's an interesting question because sort of in, in general, I'm suspicious of this feeling of being passionate about anything. I, I tend to look at these different activities while I'm doing them and say, you know, is this useful for me? Is this useful for other people? And if the answer is yes to either of those or both of those questions, then it seems like a something good to do. And lately I have I have been interested in a, a different kind of activity. I don't know if you're, if I've mentioned this to other people or if you were getting at this, but I've been interested in something called live coding. And live coding is cre- essentially creating music with code. So oh, that, I have, go ahead. I was going to ask about violin phase performance that, that you <laughs> did in, um, in your past. Is this related to that at all? Uh, yes, a little bit. Uh, sort of musically, I guess you could say it's, it's from the same lineage. When I was in uh, college, I, for my senior recital, I, I performed a piece called Steve Reich's Violin Phase where I recorded myself playing a 
this snippet and then and then I loop it and I, I recorded it. It used to be done with tape <laughs> back in the 60s, but I did it on my computer, of course. Of course. Uh, like my Mac 2 or something. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. <laughs> uh, and I looped it and then I would play... I would play it and gradually phase phase it like just a, a a part of a note ahead and then keep playing with myself over and over again. And it creates this really interesting, uh, constantly changing, uh, repetitive uh, sound. And it's it's kind of difficult to explain, but it's basically just music that's looped over and over and then you're then you're kind of playing with it this this is also this actually has a score you can play it as a string string quartet or there's other ways but with that particular performance i did it with my computer and i always thought that was like a unique piece it's kind of fun to be able to to uh use the computer and use my violin uh and live coding is similar to that except it's like infinitely more possibilities because I've been using this program called Title Cycles, or Title for short, and it's written in Haskell. <laughs> really? Yes, which is a real sort of computer science-y, geeky language. But what I'm what I'm able to do with that is to play play notes on the computer, sort of sculpt sounds, and loop them into cycles that are repeated over and over, and then sort of add to that. And what I really like about live coding is that there is no score. There are no works. It's really all about how am I feeling in this moment and, and playing around with sound. So it's not the kind of thing that I've done any performance with, although a lot of people do. It tends to be a lot of people that do what they call something called algo raves. <laughs> so it's algorithmic music and they do it at raves. And it, it's this fascinating combination of, of making music with code and living in the moment. So it, it kind of combines all of these, these passions of mine. And I have, I have found that it actually informs a lot of how I understand my day job doing Drupal work. So that probably is a surprise to most people who would hear me say those words, but what I've understood now is that live coding is all about being in the moment, writing code that's going to execute right now. And I don't necessarily know what it's going to do. I might have an idea about it, but it's all about being okay with that. In our day jobs, when we're writing Drupal code or other code for clients, we're writing for the future, in essence. We're writing for a specification. We're writing code to do something eventually. We're going to pass it up the chain. It's going to be edited. It's going to be tested. It's going to be uh, uh, run through the QA process and everything else. And so there's always the sen sense of I'm doing something for another time. So it, live coding has given me a different perspective on how I do my work and how I understand and go about my day-to-day -day activities thinking about how you know how much am i actually enjoying writing this code for drupal right now 
and noticing those moments and thinking, you know, what, what, what are the situations that led to me sitting here delighting that I got my altar hook functioning correctly or whatever the case may be. So it's, a, it's been a real fun process learning about live coding. And uh, uh, one of the interesting um, side notes is that there's a lot of academics involved in this. So there's a ton of academic literature that's been, that's been coming out over the past decade or so since I've finished graduate school examining this practice. I'm currently reading a book called the Oxford handbook of algorithmic music. And it's, it's getting to be uh, more of a thing, although it's, it's still more popular in Europe than here in the United States, but it's, it's been the area that I've been exploring quite a bit recently because it feels like it's a beneficial practice to, to, to in, engage in a way of coding where you're understand where you're enjoying it in that moment, right then. It seems quite related to the idea that the journey is more important than the destination and that living in the moment and trying to experience the moment right now could be disconnected from what the result is. Um, and and that's a really interesting take on code. And I, it never dawned on me that fundamentally every code um, snippet or project that we're a part of as an organization is building something that will execute in the future, that we're planning for in the future. And even though you're writing that code now, you're not really enjoying it or using it maybe ever because a client's using it or a user is interacting with something on the web. And so to hear you describe that um, process is, is I've not heard of that before. I, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, how, how would you say the algorithmic music, because it's music that you're creating, right? The output is sound. Yes. How does that sound differ from the sound that has been tweaked and produced? And an artist went in a, in a recording studio and they tried something and it didn't work and they tried it again and then they finally got that thing that they wanted and then that becomes the memorialized song that everybody knows. How does that thing differ or how is it similar to what is coming out of the speakers when you're live coding? There aren't any particular rules around live coding, so it can really be lots of different things. Somebody who does live coding where they might, for example, sculpt that perfect sound and that rhythm and that beat, they might, for example, take all of that code and then go do a performance with that as a starting point and maybe just tweak a few little things. That might be a little bit more similar to the process of, of creating a musical work and then, and then sharing it. Now, in, in live coding, another, another view is that you should always start with just something simple and then develop it. So in that case, then, you don't know where you're going. So mm. in a recording, uh, that, well, there's, I mean, there's, various ways that people use recording studios, but generally speaking, it boils down to people either experiment with stuff for a while until they have something cool. And then they go into the recording studio and 
try and perform it or they they go into the recording stool they play around until they get that perfect thing and then they try and figure out a way to perform it uh you know when they go and want to play it for someone else so the the live coding bit could could be done either of those ways people could definitely use uh the live coding tools and and know exactly what they want to do throughout that performance but in general there's this algorithmic uh component to it where there's there's all of these different ways of transforming the sound and you sort of develop a toolkit uh but you don't exactly know what it means to say i'm going to play this sound you know one eighth of the speed and now i'm going to play it 64 times or 500 times the speed of what it was before you can't always anticipate exactly what that will sound like or what would it sound like to suddenly add something that every third beat changes by a quarter of a beat so in a sense the algorithm as it changes becomes the accompaniment that you as an individual are are playing sort of with the algorithm that that's your that that's your accompaniment that that's the other musician now there are other ways of doing live coding where you're working with someone where maybe they're doing visuals and you're doing live coding in live coding they always project or in at least in the the manifesto for live coding they project their code on the wall in in the uh the venue and the venue could be, you know, an orchestra concert, an orchestra hall, or it could be, you know, a school, or it could be a rave at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> All of these are are ways that people do live coding. There's, you know, there's interesting TED talks on this on the web and whatnot. But uh, in general, there's 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 a lots of different ways that people do it. But um, it's really fascinating to me that it can, it can take on a real musical sound or it can just really take on a, an interesting sound aspect. And, and what I, what I personally like the most is, is not trying to do anything, but more like seeing, Oh, what is this? What happens when I do this? And what's my reaction to that? Oh, that sounds weird. Okay. I think I want to change that or, Oh, that sounds really neat. I think I want to just listen to that for a second. So there's, there's this, this aspect of cultivating present moment awareness that I haven't found with many other activities other than say meditation. Yeah. It strikes me as being similar to being a DJ. We talked, I talked to um, Lex on the podcast a few episodes ago and, and he's been tweaking and playing sounds and extending them and compressing them. And, and we talked about it as, you know, music that you distort and play and create an experience for someone else. And there seemed to be a lot of, uh, quite a few overlaps between what we discussed and being a DJ and what you're describing. Yes. One of the big differences would be in, in the process. Mm. So the result may sound similar to a, a listener, but there, a lot of the people that are sort of tweaking sounds are, you know, turning knobs. They're using different synths. They're, they're combining yeah. different, um, maybe even physical, you know, machines in their, their rack. <laughs> right. And live coding is really focused on the actual writing of code 
Amazing. Amazing. Can you give us um, one or two resources online that we should look at? Um, just if, if you have any off the top of your head, besides the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> uh, I, there is a, there's a website called toplap.org, T-O-P-L-A-P.org. Okay. And this is a place that has the, the manifesto for live coding and it lists a whole bunch of the other live coding languages that, um, exists. It has, uh, lots of information basically about live coding, uh, the type of live coding that I have been engaged in, or the language I've been using is available, or you can find out more about that one at titlecycles.org. And that's T-I-D-A-L-C-Y-C-L-E-S dot org. So those are a couple of uh, resources that come to mind. But I think if you start at TopLap, you can, you can find out quite a bit of information about what live coding is. Um, and I'll, I'll, I guess I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> and you could probably go down the proverbial rabbit hole on that side. Yes. yes. Are you using open source everywhere in your life? Or have you found that there are certain things you just simply can't do using open source software? There are things that I cannot do using open source software in my job. (laughs) Your job. Okay. Yes. What are they? Well, for example, uh, people unfortunately these days use Slack to communicate. And up until May of 2018, I could use HexChat and use their IRC bridge to connect to Slack channels via a a free software client like HexChat or IRC client. But uh, Slack Slack, uh, discontinued that particular integration and now I'm forced to use Slack. There are lots of situations where people have, you know, Google Calendar invites or Google Hangouts, or they want to do a Skype meeting. All of those kinds of things uh, require proprietary software. But in my own day-to-day, uh, whenever I have the choice, I never <laughs> choose proprietary solutions uh, if possible. So it's just there, it, it, it can get sort of, it, it takes some work, you know, for example, to continually maintain these things and, and try and do the things that I want to do using free software. There are, you know, lots of websites where if I, if I'm visiting that on my, on my, you know, my machine, that's, that doesn't, run proprietary javascript you know the web looks quite a bit different if you can't uh, do that so there's there's lots of there's lots of times when you know my maybe my you know another one is like my my kids they want to use stuff and and at one point i had uh, my my daughter really wanted to do her editing on 
it's called like Adobe Audition or something. And I just, I could not find a free software alternative. She diligently tried some other things. She just said, I, I just can't do the stuff I want to do. So I ended up having to install Windows on Ouch. a machine that <laughs> had Linux on it. And, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to interfere with somebody else's happiness to, for my own desire to write code that is free for everyone to use. Well, I admire that about you, Matthew. It's um, you're one of the few people I know who are who really try to live their principles in in the free software um, community. And I, I I've tried it myself, and it's hard. And I feel like it's a process to me. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to get to 100% free software usage myself. I've I've tried to cut down on my use of Google Drive and have my own SAN and, um, you know, tried to use things like open, it's called open cloud. Own cloud. Own cloud. That's right. That's right. And I have a, I have a Synology as well. And so I'm using its software, but it's, it's certainly a process and, um, and trying to shift out of some proprietary solutions that you already have when it's just so easy to use is, is difficult as well. Sometimes it's better. Some, there's a technology for file syncing called SyncThing. You're the one who told me about that. I've seen that. It's really good. It's really good. It's, and then at, at one point, the, the Android client stopped working, and I, but I needed to get some other stuff done. So I moved some other things over to Dropbox, and I just thought, wow, this is really limited. I can't do the stuff I want to do. And... <laughs> <laughs> then sync thing got fixed and I could switch back. back, but you know, okay. I, so I occasionally try these other things, but it's not like it's always better. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending your precious time with me and with being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on Yvonne. It's been fun. You're Matthew Tift on Twitter. That's at Matthew Tift. On Drupal.org, you're at mtift, and your podcast, Hacking Culture, is at Hacking Culture, also on Twitter. You've been listening to the 107 Podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening. <laughs>